Hi, everyone. I'm back from vacation and getting back into the swing of things. I hope you all enjoyed last week's Bible analysis. So before I jump into this week's episode, I'd like to say thank you. I received a number of emails from people regarding my episode with Andrew Howard. The reviews were universally positive. Now, I can't tell you how much that means to me. Again, I'm not a professional at apologetics, but I do attend church with pastors Jeff Durbin and James White. That helps, but you never know until you actually get on the court. So to have received the outpouring of supportive emails, messages, comments, and more was both an enormous blessing and a great relief to my heart. Thank you. And truly all glory to God for opening my eyes to be able to see these truths and giving me the gift of speech to be able to communicate them. As with all things, it's all him. So this week, I'd like to do a sort of response to Andrew Howard, though not him personally, because that would be unfair. Rather, something he said, the issue that he was the most uncomfortable with, the doctrine of hell. As you'll recall, he took particular issue with being told that for his disbelief, he'd be sent to hell forever. People have commented that they enjoyed my distinction between hell being moral and hell being just. Now, I'm pretty sure I got that one from Tom Askell, Paul Washer, or someone like that. So thanks be to God for that teaching. But I've been thinking it through, and I wanted to dive in deeper on hell because it's important. And that's what this episode is about. Now, I warn you, this is going to be a heavy intellectual episode of logical progressions. My intention is that you think carefully about the things I'm going to say about the moral and theological weight of them. It has been a test for me and a challenge. It's going to change the way I do evangelism, because if I truly believe what I say I believe, then this should be in my mind when I talk to every non-believer, including friends and family. So, let's begin. First, hell is a scriptural reality, and no one talked about hell as much as Jesus did. In Luke 16, he tells the parable of Abraham and Lazarus, quote, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The word that the ESV renders as Hades, the KJV renders as hell. And then in Matthew 13, verses 49 and 50, quote, So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There should be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9, 43, quote, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. And finally, Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-9, through 9, quote, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. These are just four of 19 verses you can read via a link in the show notes. Plus, listen to a sermon by Tom Askell of Founders Ministries called Mankind in Hell that is a gripping discussion of so many of these issues. So look, if you believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God, hell is not optional. It is described as isolation, unquenchable fire, and darkness. The technical term is eternal conscious torment. So let's take that apart. Eternal. It goes on forever and ever. 
without ceasing or relief, conscious, you are aware and awake for it, as present as you are in this moment. And the Oxford definition of torment is, quote, severe physical or mental suffering. Now look, I get that this is a lot. It's one of the most inconvenient aspects of Christianity, probably the most inconvenient. In fact, I remember long before I became a Christian, I struggled with it. I said, what could I, a limited physical being of 80 years existence, possibly do to deserve eternal punishment from the creator of the universe? The punishment didn't seem to fit the crime, or even crimes. Well, I wasn't understanding the problem correctly, and neither did Andrew, which is why I'm recording this podcast. Now, what you heard me say at the end of the episode is that hell is a moral necessity, and it is. In the episode, Andrew and I talked about power and how men of enough power, physical, military, financial, political, etc., can sufficiently insulate themselves from the consequences of their wicked actions. Now, take Stalin. He's said to be directly responsible for the deaths of 9 million people, but through mass murder, forced labor, and famine, you can probably attribute close to 60 million deaths to him. Meanwhile, he died of a cerebral hemorrhage and possibly poison. Here's how an official Russian source describes his death, so take it with a grain of salt. Quote, On February 28, 1953, Stalin and a small number of his inner circle, consisting of Malenkov, Molotov, Beria, Khrushchev, and several others, gathered together for an evening of entertainment and the imbibing of alcoholic beverages. The guests dispersed at approximately 4 a.m. on March 1st, and Stalin retired to his private quarters. Time passed and no sounds were heard throughout the day, but adhering to his strict instructions that he was not to be disturbed under any circumstances, no one entered the room. Finally, at approximately 11 p.m. on March 1st, his housekeeper cautiously entered his room and found him lying on the floor, wearing his pajama trousers and a shirt. He was unconscious, breathing heavily, incontinent, and unresponsive to attempts to rouse him. End quote. So a man directly responsible for the deaths of 9 million people dies suddenly in his pajamas without much suffering after a night of music and drinking, and that's the end of the story? If that's true, then there's no justice in the universe at all. Then, in the words of 1 Corinthians 15.32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But it's actually worse than that. If there's no hell, no punishment for wickedness, our incentives are actually to be wicked ourselves. Because others will lie, cheat, and steal to get ahead of us, why shouldn't we lie, cheat, and steal to get ahead of them? The clear, game-theoretical incentive becomes a race to the bottom for who can become the most depraved. For tomorrow we die, right? There's just one little detail, our conscience, the little voice in our head and hearts that tells us right from wrong. To some extent, the conscience is conditioned by our circumstances and culture. For example, in America, it's considered rude to belch or generally make any sounds at all at the dinner table around polite company. If I were to tell you to drink a swig of sparkling water and let one rip, or do so myself, you might be horrified at the breach of decorum. But on the website makemytrip.com, which is fairly reputable, they write that, quote, In Egypt, burping loudly after a meal is considered good dining etiquette and signifies your appreciation of the food you've just eaten. In fact, burping is often considered the highest compliment a guest can pay the host on the food prepared by them. So your conscience would convict you if you didn't burp. But there's an element of our conscience that is not conditioned, not in healthy people anyway. The images of Tank Man in Tiananmen Square, the burning monk, or the famous 1993 photo, The Vulture and the Struggling Girl, stir us on the deepest level because of the universality of conscience. In fact, 
the vulture and the struggling girl stirred the photographer so much, he tragically took his own life just four months after winning the Pulitzer Prize for the photo. Because we have a conscience is what leads Andrew Howard, among many others, to say, I'm a good person, and therefore, I don't deserve hell. And as you heard me say, I believe he's sincere. And indeed, we listening are not Stalin, Genghis Khan, Mao, Hitler, or anyone like that. How can we possibly deserve eternal conscious torment merely for not believing? I get how that doesn't make sense, but only if you don't understand the true meaning of Christianity. To get the true meaning of Christianity, you need to contrast it theologically with every other faith tradition on earth. Now, this is something I have firsthand experience with. Let me say that again. First-hand experience. I'm talking actual Shipibo shamans in Peru, the actual Ganges River at the Kumela Festival in Prayagraj, India, an actual meditation cushion doing Buddhist Vipassana meditation in the actual mountains of Kashmir, and sacred geometry meditations in actual Bali, among many other things. I stress all this so that you understand that I didn't read what I'm about to say in a book. I have gone physically to some of the more extreme environments known to man, from mountaintops at 17,000 feet, to sailboats on stormy oceans, to underground caves. And psychologically and spiritually, I have gone as far down into and far up out of my consciousness as you can and still come back. Those words might not have meaning to you, but I say them so that you know I will sit down with any guru, sadhu, or influencer and go toe-to-toe and talk about what's out there. And to be very clear, that is not bragging. That is true spiritual darkness God literally rescued me from. I think I walked as far into the dark as one can before reaching the point of no return. And the only reason I didn't pass that point is because God literally prevented me. I was weeks away from learning real techniques to contact disembodied beings as part of my tarot and Kabbalah courses. That's how close I came. Or at least, that's how close I know I came. God probably knows I came much closer because He is the one who delivered me. All glory to Him and hallelujah. So, back to the faith traditions of the world. Every single other faith tradition I've encountered believes that we can climb up to God by our own efforts. The catch is, not the Christian God. Buddhism, for example, believes you can meditate yourself out of existence and realize eternal unity with the divine called nirvana. Advaita Vedanta Hinduism believes the same. These ideas form the core of the New Age. Taoism expresses a similar idea of oneness with nature. Shintoism sacralizes everyday life, elevating the mundane to the status of divine. Any system of works-based righteousness is identical to this idea, that through our good works we can climb upwards to God. This is how salvation works in Islam. Quote, They whose balances shall be heavy shall be blessed, but they whose balances shall be light, they shall lose their soul, abiding in hell forever. Surah 23, 102-104 The key thing to keep in mind is that in all these cases and more, we can supposedly be united to God by our own efforts, either in obedience to God's law or via the negation of the self. In either case, we climb up to God. Why can we do this? Because all these faith traditions lack a concept of original sin. They believe we are fundamentally good and can be made better through our own efforts, which eventually, in this lifetime, or the next, or the one after that, make us one with God. Now, what does Christianity say? Christianity says that due to original sin, we as humans are fallen beyond repair. In a very real sense, we broke ourselves, broke the world, and broke the cosmos. Sin and death itself entered the world through us. And here's the important part. We cannot climb back up under our own efforts. It's impossible. 
Our fall was so far, our error so grave, the consequences so severe that our first parents severed us permanently from communion with the divine, not union, but communion. We were never one with God, so we cannot return to being one with God. We fell from fellowship with him. And what did it take to remedy that fall? The creator of the universe himself, one of the three persons of the Trinity, had to come to earth as a man, be born in a manger, live a peasant laborer's life, be betrayed, tortured, and ultimately die an excruciating blood-soaked death to bring us back into fellowship with him. Not only can we not climb up to God, he had to condescend to us. And not only did he have to condescend to us, he had to condescend to our lowest state. None of us would want to live the life that Christ did, let alone die the death that he did. You think life was easy for him before his ministry, a time which is unrecorded? I doubt it. Meanwhile, he did it all sinlessly, living a harder life than we do, better than we do, even dying better than we do too. That is what it took to bring us back into reconciliation with God. Not a drop of our effort, but fountains of his blood. Okay, now let's look at the distinctives. The religions of the world say we can climb up to God. Christianity, among all the other religions, says he had to come down to us. The religions of the world say that we are fundamentally good. Christianity says we are fundamentally not. The religions of the world say we can and must save ourselves by our own efforts. Christianity says that is literally impossible. These two things are not the same. Not at all. Not even a little bit. And the dawning realization of this has increasingly convicted my heart of how fallen all the practices are that I once did. That's why I emphasize that I have personal experience with many of the traditions I outlined above. I can confirm that their worldview is one of fundamental goodness climbing upwards to God. Or sometimes the alternative is self-negation, which is essentially the same thing. Now you might be wondering, what does all this have to do with hell? Just for a second, let's put aside the notion of original sin and total depravity. Let's stipulate that we are, in fact, good people. Good enough, at least. Let's also stipulate the one thing that basically every faith tradition agrees with. There is a spiritual dimension to reality, and the soul is immortal. They disagree with the mechanics of that, where the soul goes, whether into an afterlife or a new body. But basically, every world faith and spiritual tradition seeks to answer the question first, what happens when we die? That presumes that something happens, not nothing. Sure, some people say nothing happens. Those are the atheists and the existentialists. But no one likes them very much, especially because that idea, taken to its logical conclusion, means that the proper response to suffering is suicide. If you're in deep suffering of some sort and nothing happens after you die, why not just end your life? Not that I'm advocating for this, of course, but think it through. Life really sucks, and I'm over it. Peace out. Now you might say, what about your social relations? Okay, let's strip those away too. Say your whole family has disowned you, or died, or you're an orphan living alone in the wilderness. If nothing happens after you die, why not just end it? Especially if no one will be affected. Now, if you feel your conscience tingling in response to that, then you're on to why no one likes the atheists and existentialists because their own worldview leads to absurdity. So back to the point. We have stipulated for the moment that original sin isn't real, but that the immortality of the soul is. Naturally, we also have to stipulate that God is real, which would go along with the immortality of the soul bit. We didn't make our own immortal souls, so who made us? So we have basically good people with immortal souls and an almighty creator God. I think that's a position that most people on earth can get down with. Now, the Christian story from this point is that Almighty Creator God sent one-third of Himself to earth 
to suffer and die a peasant criminal's death to be in communion with us. God laid his own son on the altar and sacrificed him so we can be with God forever. That is an incredible gift. Why would someone not want that? Heck yeah, I want to be in paradise for eternity with God. Sign me up. Thanks, Big G. Except there's just one catch. You have to repent from sin. God has offered up his firstborn son to die a bloody death to be in reconciliation with us forever. And in this scenario, not even because we did anything wrong. It's his gift to us, his ante, so we can be with him in heaven. But again, you can't get something for nothing. What we can give is two things, repentance from sin and belief. Those are our sacrifices in exchange. Now, here's the crucial part. It would seem to me that this is a pretty sweet deal, and yet people reject it. Why would you reject this deal? Because of one reason and one reason only, attachment to sin. God has given his son as his part of the bargain. What we have to give in exchange is our sin. And some people are like, nah, I think I like my sin. And there it is. God offers what is most precious to him, and many people cannot offer what is most precious back, meaning they're not willing to endure discomfort of saying no to themselves in order to participate in the stellar deal offered by the creator of the universe. Eternity in exchange for temporal behavioral discomfort is too much for some. Now, we've stipulated this creator of the universe exists and that the soul is immortal. What then should that creator do when you die? He says, here is my son that I will sacrifice to be in reconciliation with you when you die. All it costs you is your sin. And you say, no, then you die. What then? Well, you don't get to be with him. You didn't do your end of the deal. So we're left with just two possibilities, not with him or annihilation. But we discussed at the start about how a universe of annihilation is unjust. It would mean a truly wicked and powerful man could get away with literal murder or even mass murder. So annihilation of the wicked cannot be an option. But then you say, I'm not wicked. To which I reply, okay, then do you want to be annihilated when you die? And frankly, I don't think many people would honestly answer yes. They might say it for rhetorical effect as a young person, but if you were to check back with them at the moment before their impending death, either suddenly or as an old man or woman, I think they'd quietly prefer some form of afterlife. And I think that would be the true answer. So if your soul won't get to be with God in heaven because you won't accept the terms of his deal and you won't be annihilated, then the only remaining option for your soul is not with God. At this point, your mind might flee and say, I choose reincarnation to be reborn as a human. To which I reply, okay, will that new life be as good or better than this one? If you say as good, then we're talking about Hinduism, endless rebirth into the karmic wheel for eternity. Now look, I like my life, but to me being born and reborn into countless human lives forever sounds a bit awful, a bit like eternal suffering when you really think about it, because life is hard. So then if you say, my next life will be better, you're talking about Buddhism, which takes us back to the world religions in which we climb up to God through continual self-driven improvement. And remember, unlike any other world religion, Christianity instead says God came down to us. So by attempting to claim reincarnation, you've exited into a different paradigm. Why? Because the reality of eternity without God is terrifying. And on the other hand, for many people, the price of being in eternity with God is too high. This tension is why people say, you just can't know what happens after we die. Well, it's a cop-out especially for Westerners who just don't want to deal with the possibility of eternity without God because they don't want to pay the price of repentance to be with him. So they profess agnosticism. I can't know, and you can't either. No one knows. 
Now, that might sound compelling, except for one thing, the giant elephant in the room, God's sacrifice of his son to be in reconciliation with us, his condescension. That offer is still on the table. You can know. It just costs you your sin. And for some, for many, in fact, that price is just too high. This is the point of cognitive dissonance, the point where many Western people steeped in Christianity just cannot land, that God is offering them a sweet deal, the best deal ever, and they are not willing to accept because they are not willing to repent. The word for this is pride. This was the sin that took down Satan. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. End quote. This was then the sin that took down Eve. Genesis 3, 5. Quote, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This was the false temptation for Eve to be raised above her station. And Adam wasn't deceived by this, but he capitulated for unknown reasons, most likely his own pride. And now that brings us back to the last point, and this is where it gets ugly, original sin. We have already determined that even when we're supposedly good people, many resist the notion of an eternity without God, and yet still they're caught between that resistance and their equal resistance to repentance from sin. Again, without original sin, God's deal should be the easiest deal of all. Give up a little bit of temporal discomfort for an eternity of communion with the creator of the universe. And yet for many, that price is too high. Now, original sin raises the stakes here in three important ways. First, it means that we are not good people. We aren't axe murderers or serial liars, but we are still, at our cores, desperately wicked. And if you don't think this is true about each and every one of us, then I ask you to conduct the following thought experiment. How would your life go for 24 hours if everyone around you could read the literal contents of your mind? They could see your thoughts if you think in pictures or hear them when you speak in words in as vivid detail as you experience them. How many of your relationships would be strained or even ruined? What would people think of you? Would you be humiliated, abandoned, or even physically attacked? Probably. We may act in more or less good ways, but none of us think in good ways or even pure ways all the time. That is one way we can know that original sin is real and that we are not good people. This is what I was trying to get at when I said to Andrew Howard, are you the best policeman of your mind? None of us can control our inner wickedness, even if we control our outer wickedness, but God sees both. So original sin raises the stakes, first of all, because it reveals for us that we are absolutely not the good people that we would like to believe. The second way it raises the stakes is that it makes God's deal infinitely sweeter. Literally, we are not good people. We do not deserve God sacrificing his son, his self for us. And yet the creator of the universe condescended into human form, suffered through life, and suffered even greater in death than we can imagine to offer reconciliation to us lost and broken creatures. Viewed that way, God's deal goes from good to staggering, incomprehensible, mind-boggling. God would give his son for me, for all my mistakes, for all my evil thoughts, for my sinful desires fulfilled and unfulfilled? You'd give your own son to have me be with you in eternity. All of this wiped clean forever and forgotten? What do I have to give in exchange? The answer, my sin. And to that I say, Lord, take it. Take it all. 
you have offered me something of eternal priceless value in exchange for the tiniest discomfort by comparison. Yes, I take that deal. Yes, I repent. Yes, I believe. You can have it all, God. Your generosity is overwhelming. I fall to my knees and repent in dust and ashes, for someday I will be glorified with you. I say yes. Which means there's one final way original sin raises the stakes. If we are not good people, which by now you should know we aren't, and God still sacrifices his son, offering us the most cosmically staggering deal of all time, and we say no, we still say no for the same reason. Because I want to keep to my sin, you can't have my part of the deal. Now, we've already discussed how annihilation is too good for the wicked. That means an eternity without God, for we have rejected his deal. What does an eternity without God look like? We need only examine what eternity looks like for the last group who chose not God, Satan and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Because that's who our first parents, Adam and Eve, ultimately listened to, right? The devil. We choose the temptations of the devil over God, and we get the same fate the devil did. And moreover, we deserve it, because God offered us the most staggeringly merciful deal in all the cosmos, eternity for the price of sin, and we won't pay it. In other words, We chose, like our first parents did, but we chose with even more knowledge than they had. That is why hell, eternal conscious torment, is just. A merciful God gave his only son to die a death of untold suffering so we can be with him in eternity, and we said no because we preferred our sin out of pride. Pride threw the devil and his angels into eternal fire. They are eternal beings, and so are we, so we deserve the same fate. Matthew 12, 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is why when Andrew Howard asked me for a straight answer about whether I thought he was going to hell, I said yes. He wanted it, he got it, he didn't like it, and tried to claim it was my own personal condemnation of him, which it wasn't. Rather, that's what the book says. This logic of justice is inescapable, The only other choices that men have is into agnosticism, no one can know, atheism, there's nothing, or mysticism, all is one, or even works righteousness, I can climb up to God. And as we have seen that each of those is a flawed argument, but men will flee into one or more of them because original sin has raised the stakes so high and they feel it. Sin drives men and women to madness. Repentance and God's overwhelming grace is the only cure. But that would cost their pride. And I don't know if you've noticed, but that seems to be the one thing many men, not to mention many women, can't do without. Some who do apologetics often use the following verses from Romans chapter 1, quote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes— namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And those are certainly powerful verses. But my favorite verse in the Bible, the one that I think goes hardest, 
is just a couple verses down from the most famous verse of all. John 3.16 reads, quote, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And just two sentences later, though, we read something very different in John 3.19, quote, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. If you want to know how to find the narrow gate, if you ask me, it's between John 3.16 and 3.19. Maybe pause this recording and read those verses now. So what do we do with this? Because it proves conclusively that all who don't believe are destined for eternal conscious torment, and more importantly, they deserve it. First, we have to recognize that we once deserved it too. In fact, we still do. But being part of God's covenant of grace means that the only difference between us and anyone else is the will of God to save us and not our works so that none of us may boast. So we have no cause to feel special or superior. That's point one. Point two is that if we truly believe what we say we believe, we must be much more bold in our evangelism. Maybe that doesn't mean starting a podcast, but it could mean talking to our parents, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers. Ultimately, it's not on us to save anybody. That's all God. But maybe our responsibility isn't to save, but to love. If you could play a role to rescue someone from eternal conscious torment, would you? Should you? Will you? The answers to those questions are worth thinking about. I've been thinking about them. And finally, point three is that you can understand the fire and brimstone teaching Andrew Howard mentioned at the start of our dialogue. Another term is sawdust and tears revivalism, where preachers across the expanding United States frightened mobile populations into the hands of a loving God. Now, I don't think that's the most compelling case for Christianity. I think a cosmically sweet deal from the creator of the universe is a far better framing. But there's still the notion of repentance, the cost for the whole deal. And I believe we, as Christian apologists and evangelists, need to be familiar with both these moves like a one-two punch, both the justice of hell and the mercy afforded sinners. If a man or woman won't be moved by the outstretched hand of mercy, perhaps instead they'll be moved by the clenched fist of justice. Both are real. Both are true. Both are God. That is the God we serve. And I pray that more men and women, including Andrew, come to see and serve that God as well. In closing, I'd like to add two things. First, yes, I'm aware that purgatory is another afterlife option, but that's a different kind of debate between Roman Catholicism and Protestant doctrine, which is ultimately an authority question and outside the scope of this discussion. I'm sure that discussion will happen someday. In fact, it is happening, and I'd just as soon avoid it, but I do have to acknowledge it. And second, if you'd like to read a book that compassionately displays both the justice of hell and the mercy of heaven, plus our participation in God's grand story of redemption, I recommend the C.S. Lewis book, The Great Divorce. C.S. Lewis isn't scripture, though sometimes I think people mistake him and Tolkien for being scripture. However, in that book, Lewis does illustrate a number of principles, including repentance and our role in our own damnation, in a way that narratively surfaces many of the principles I've described. Thanks so much for coming with me on this journey. Next week, I'll resume my interview episodes with a string of shows you won't want to miss. So until then, thanks for listening to this episode and the podcast. And as always, God bless.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.